everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Stars Oratoria, your premier Star Citizen podcast. My name is Senate Van Rijn, and I am currently broadcasting to you live from, get this, the North Pole of a moon revolving around a gas giant revolving around a star that may or may not be about to go supernova. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the holiday season of 2942 is in full swing, and with billions upon billions of little citizen boys and little citizen girls scattered across the galaxy, Santa Claus has his work cut out for him. As for me, my lovely Sean producer, or as I call her around this time every year, my own personal Shanta Claus, don't look at me like that, and I will be delivering one last traditional episode to you before taking a minor break over the holiday season. We have compatriots to visit with and need to stay off the radar while making the risky journey to visit with them. Fortunately, we have some experience smuggling people out of oppressive environments. Doesn't take more than just the flip of a few switches to smuggle ourselves into them. Expect to possibly hear from us during the holiday break, just not in the traditional manner if you do. Our brief time away won't be all smiles and festivities, as we will also be working on getting the infrastructure in place to begin including guests from the community. Over vast, interstellar distances and under close scrutiny from certain governments, guesting isn't quite as simple as the old telephone call from your living room. Anyone that wants to share thoughts on star citizenship and reports from their corner of the galaxy are going to have to hop into their ship of choice and brave the journey to within at least two systems of wherever I happen to be at the time. There, they will have to let their ship coast along in deep space, and so will begin an untraceable transmission initiated by yours truly. This method, while not easy and not always yielding of the finest quality communications recordings, is safest for all parties involved, and however inconvenient is how it must be done. For those of you able to go through the trouble, I look forward to hearing from you. For those of you unable, I look forward to continuing to share with you. So this episode, alongside our usual segments, we will be discussing Star Citizen audio direction, including music, voice acting, and sound effects. For now, we'll take a quick break and return with the latest news and updates from Cloud Imperium Games Corporation. Stick around. First up, as always, the news, and the most exciting news unleashed on us citizens, at least to me, since our last episode has to be the release of the Freelancer 3D Design Renders. Towards the tail end of the crowdfunding campaign, many of us voted between two designs to decide how the Freelancer would look. One design, which is very similar to what you can see in the new renders, obviously went out. It looked a bit different in the original sketch most notably with a narrower cockpit viewport and a larger wing-like implement around the tail end. But I'm a huge fan of how it's ended up, and Chris did mention that it's still a work in progress. The design that did not win out was much sleeker, sharper, and more militaristic, in my opinion. I did not vote for it, as I didn't think it fit as well with the sort of non-military uses the freelancer is expected to see. It was a very good-looking design, however, and I believe we will see it in the game in another way. 
Check the link in the show notes if you didn't see the original designs at the time or just want to take another look. But again, I think it's turning out great. I'm anxious to see the interior. It's a bit smaller than the Constellation, so I'm interested to see what kind of rooms there are. Since it doesn't have the launchable fighter, there should be a lot more space to take advantage of. Speaking of the Constellation and interiors, we've also seen an update that shows paintovers of a few rooms and the launchable P-52 fighter. This helps get those original 3D renders that much closer to a lived-in, this-is-a-real-ship-I-can-go-out-and-buy feel. Numerous interviews have been released over the last week or so, and a few key bits of information have surfaced from them. One notable tidbit comes from the MMORPG.com interview and regards travel time and how long it might take to fly your ship from one end of the galaxy to the other. Essentially, nothing is set in stone as yet, but for now, the idea is that it might be something like 15 jumps to cross the playable game universe, which, including flying within systems for at least 30 minutes and jumping between them without any combat along the way, could take as long as 6 or 7 hours. I'm the type of player that does not like to use fast travel in open-world games. Now, a space game lends itself well to fast travel, as you can have warp drives and jump gates and all of those wonderful things that fit within the universe. But generally, I don't use standard click-on-your-map fast travel. Is it for realism? Not necessarily. If you're talking about realistic travel in any game, I'd wager none of it involves 10-hour road trips with frequent breaks at rest stops along the way. But generally, the idea is to make a big world feel big. As many developers are now designing their games around fast travel, like Skyrim, where you'll have a quest on one side of the map and then have to cross back to the other side of the map to turn something in and cross back again, etc., this limits how much I can get done in a specific quest line during a play session. However, I find that there is just as much fun to be had along the journey. I'm all about the journey. What's the point in having a huge open world, or open galaxy, and feeling like a real person in that world or galaxy, if you can just magically teleport precisely where you need to go to finish this and hurry up and finish that and oh, now I beat the game? Then it's no longer a big world. It's a series of rooms connected by a map that you click on. Similarly, I always appreciate when an open world game bothers to include an explanation for fast travel. Silt Striders in Morrowind, Carriages in Skyrim. I keep using Bethesda examples. Red Dead Redemption I mentioned in an earlier show. But if you hop on a carriage, John Marston will even mention that he's going to get some shut-eye during the travel time. It's a small detail, but it's important to me. So currently it's estimated to take 30 minutes to travel across a star system in Star Citizen using your warp drive equivalent to jump between objects of interest. Or at least an hour or two, if you choose to just fly through the blackness of deep space. Having the option for lengthy travel times is great to me. As I said, many people want to just jump from one exciting moment to the next. And I do as well sometimes. But those lulls in the action, that calm travel time, is just as involving to me as the exciting moments. And that balance is necessary. Of course, I wouldn't want to sit around for three hours when I could just set autopilot and get to my destination, but I might choose to sit around for a small fraction of that time, especially if there are things to do. And as I touched upon a moment ago, with lengthy travel time, you also get a proper sense of scale. These are vast distances. It should feel like it. If in-game lore specifies that XYZ commodity is valued way out in the fringe systems because it's hard to get it there, it should be hard to get it there. 
Of course, as I said, it's important for there to be things to do along the way. Since you can set autopilot and it's still expected to take around 30 minutes to cross a system, many games on your ship are going to be that much more important. Imagine that you're sitting with your crew playing a game of star chess in the rec room while traveling to your next jump. Perhaps an alarm or sound of some kind is triggered whenever a ship or object of interest comes within so many kilometers, maybe firing range. Then another alarm sounds when you're being targeted. Everyone has to drop what they're doing and run to their stations. Maybe along the way the ship takes a few hits and shakes all around you as you're racing to your posts. Perhaps you're playing star chess and you receive a hail from another ship. You know what really needs to be in the game? Hailing. I'm cruising along in my 300i, solo, and a ship comes within 200 kilometers. I receive a hail, and their character's face pops up on one of my cockpit panels. Or at the very least, their voice chimes in over the radio. Maybe text comes up on a panel if they don't have a microphone. Anyway, are they pirates? Bounty hunters? We negotiate terms. A user whose name escapes me, forgive me and send me an email, had a great idea relating to hailing. Perhaps in order to hail a specific ship type, you need to know the right frequency, all of which needs to be punched into your ship computer. Don't know the right frequency? They open fire. Or you open fire if they don't. The psychological element would be monumental. Hailing definitely needs to be in the game. But back on the subject of travel time, and speaking of single-player ships, what you will do in one during extended travel time is another matter entirely. There isn't going to be much room for star chess or any other multiplayer minigame on a single-player ship. So finding that balance for people that do like to just jump from one major event to the next would be where lengthy in-system travel time might become an issue. Sitting in your ship by yourself, staring at the blackness of space for 30 minutes to cross a system and then another 30 to cross another would get a bit tedious. I'm curious to see where that balance will ultimately be found. I wouldn't be surprised to see the time, when using your warp drive or equivalent, narrowed down a bit from 30 minutes to cross a system to something much shorter than the time to just fly from one side of a system to another without warping being narrowed down from the one to two hour estimate. But we will see. Somewhat on the subject of ships, we swing to our next segment called Ship a Show, in which we detail one ship per show. This episode we will be highlighting the Constellation from Roberts Space Industries, chosen as it has the most information released on it to date. We have discussed it previously, but have glossed over the minor details. Let's start with the name. Constellation. A good name. A strong name. Like a constellation, you know that it will still be holding up well beyond your natural lifespan. The debate has been going back and forth over whether the nickname for the ship should be Connie or Stella. Personally, as both of those names make me think of the movie Thelma and Louise, or otherwise picture a sassy waitress at a grimy southern diner in 1984, I will stick with Constellation. It's spacey, it's classy, it's endearing enough all on its own. Let the debate rage on. Without me. For the nitty-gritty on the ship, we refer to the Star Citizen Ships Development Document on the official website and the PDF of the ship schematics, links to both of which you can find in the show notes. 
As mentioned, the constellation is built by Roberts Space Industries, henceforth referred to as RSI. It has a max crew of four, a mass of 75,000 kilograms without cargo, and a focus on long-range mercantile use and space superiority in combat. It has an upgrade capacity of 14, a cargo capacity of 35 tons, four engine modifiers, an antimatter maximum class, four times TR6 thrusters, and eight times TR3, with a total of 14 hardpoints, including two class 1s, four class 2s, six class 3s, and two class 4s. It also hosts a tender which is a short-range P-52 space fighter that can be launched from the underside of the vessel. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen the ship schematics released for the Constellation. Use this podcast as an excuse to take your second, or in many cases, 20-second look now. Slightly unrelated, but one thing I'm unclear of with Star Citizen ship mechanics in general is whether or not you'll be able to have passengers on your ship that exceed the max crew number. Maybe Chris mentioned in a comment or Q&A session somewhere, please link me if so. But as the Constellation does have a max crew of four, will it be possible to have more people just tagging along as passengers in addition to crew? If there are mini-games, maybe playing games at the table while the crew goes about their duties. Or will you be able to have a cook or medic on board? Will they have to be NPCs? Everyone will essentially be a pilot in the game, whether they're in the military, trading, pirating, etc., but I am interested to see what other roles might be able to be filled by real people as development goes on. But that's another can of worms entirely. Back to the Constellation. The Constellation is supposed to be the Millennium Falcon of the Star Citizen universe. Of course, the Millennium Falcon never had a launchable fighter, but we can just think of it as Luke's X-Wing flying escort, or otherwise sitting in the cargo bay. Straight from the ship's development document, RSI describes the Constellation thusly. Quote, when you think handsome bounty hunter making his own way in a galaxy of enemies, you think the Constellation. The Constellation, a multi-person freighter, is the most popular ship in RSI's current production array. Constellations are beloved by smugglers and merchants alike because they are modular, high-powered, and just downright iconic looking. The Constellation includes a manned turret, a large cargo area, and a small flight deck capable of launching a snub fighter in its own defense. End quote. If you'll remember, I have the lifetime insurance on the 300i, but I'm sure my character in-game would and will have a constellation. It fits my in-universe profile and activities. Before we move on, I mentioned last episode that I don't like the idea of pledging for ships, and more ships, as I want to have the satisfaction of obtaining them in the game and the nail-biting stress of holding on to them. Having a constellation in my hangar when I first boot up the game and having lifetime insurance for it negates both of those feelings. I would like to further clarify that. I haven't gotten any angry emails or comments or anything, but I don't think I made it clear that that's really just how I feel, and I don't look down on anyone that feels differently, and pledged for more than one ship, or maybe every ship in the game. We're different people, and it makes me happy that you've contributed so much to the game's development. But for those of you that have issues like I do, and still want to contribute, I think it's worth mentioning that I chose to subscribe monthly, and I'm glad I was given that option. I don't have to worry about any more ships being in my hangar, forever, without doing anything in the game universe, 
and I can still help the game become everything we all want it to be. So if you're like me and you want to contribute further financially but don't want more than one ship with lifetime insurance, and if you happen to be unaware before listening, check into the subscriber options. Star Citizen is the first and only game that I've pledged for, so you might imagine that it's as important to me as a video game can be to someone. Now obviously I wouldn't give up my future half-shawn star child to play it or anything, but I don't just go around making podcasts for any old video game. But moving along to the meat of this episode, let's talk audio. Music, voice acting, sound effects, these have all become as integral to the video game experience as the gameplay itself. A lot of times, when I recall a video game that I really enjoyed playing years ago, it's often the music that first comes to mind. When I think of playing Final Fantasy VII, I immediately hear Aerith's piano theme tinkling away. I can't hear Ave Maria without thinking of Agent 47. If you've played Terraria, you'll remember that there were only about two main tracks that you heard throughout the majority of your time playing the game, the daytime and nighttime themes, though there were a few more for various locales, but even just those two songs were excellent, and if I hear them at random while browsing the internet, I instantly get a craving to boot up the game. Then there are the intro themes. Half of the time, I sit staring at menu screens waiting for songs to finish. Baba Yetu from Civilization IV, Hero Within from The Settler Seven, the Rome Total War intro theme. Those are all similar games, but most recently, I was sitting around on Deus Ex Human Revolution's opening menu. I could go on. What about sound effects? Anyone would recognize the sound of a coin being picked up by Mario, or the codec noise from Metal Gear Solid. Even though the majority of us would agree and already know, I hope I'm helping to illustrate how critical sound creation can be to a gameplay experience, and how memorable it can be. I can play a game I haven't played in a decade and maybe I'll need to refresh myself on how to play, all while humming perfectly along to the unforgettable background music. Alongside the artwork and interaction the gameplay presents you with, these things ultimately round out the atmosphere that envelops you. Of course, then there is voice acting, which is a polarizing thing. A common problem many have with voice acting is that it is a major resource hog. Most notably in RPGs, the inclusion of voice acting can often limit how much writing material can end up in the final project. If I have to pay so much to have this voice actor say these lines, then I can't write the thousand lines that I had planned for the character he's playing. Now I can do half of that, or maybe a quarter. Of course, this all depends highly on budget and time constraints. Then you have the risk of bad voice acting ruining good writing, whereas if I had been free to read the character's voice in my head, that wouldn't have been a concern. And I might have read it a lot faster than the voice actor would have said it. Generally, I'm less in a hurry and more about soaking in the atmosphere, however, and obviously, as graphical fidelity has increased and we get closer and closer to realism, it's that much more jarring when you have this real person standing in front of you, and in place of a voice, a text box opens up. For as many benefits as text has, I think many have accepted that at least for AAA games, it's largely a thing of the past. I know I have. I think a decent balance has been found in many games, though. What about celebrity voice actors? Are they really necessary and worth the cost? Well, yes, sometimes. Though I know in a lot of cases it detracts from a project, be it a movie or television show or game, when I see or hear someone playing a role, 
and I recognize them as some iconic character from something else. And this will be a theme with the sound discussion, as I imagine it will come up with music as well. But how much do we all love Nolan North? The guy is incredible. He was amazing as Nathan Drake, and I didn't even recognize him as the Penguin in Batman Arkham City until I saw his name in the credits. But now, whenever I hear him in something using his natural voice, I don't hear this new character, like I did with Nathan Drake originally, or Desmond Miles from the Assassin's Creed series, who he also voices. I don't hear this new character, I hear Nolan North. This is why his role as the Penguin was so refreshing and excellent, completely disguised, but still grade A talent. Mark Hamill is obviously worth mentioning, not just in that he was the unmatched voice of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series and the Arkham games, but also because of his connection to Star Citizen and Chris Roberts, having played Maverick in the Wing Commander series. But on the point, I personally don't like the idea of having a voice actor portray a role just because I love and recognize that voice actor from another project. Because when I listen to this person talk in the game, it's going to pull me right out as I'll be thinking, oh, this is so-and-so from that movie or TV show or other game. It's cute at first, but then, like basically any cameo in anything, it tends to just ruin the illusion. If I don't recognize the voice, then the character is now his or her own self-contained entity. It's kind of like the fatal flaw in a lot of massive games, where only 10 voice actors are used for 100 or more characters. I brought up Bethesda games earlier, but Oblivion and Skyrim were colossal offenders with this. And not only did they have just a few voice actors, but they all had substantially recognizable and weird voices. You would see the same ones pop up from Morrowind in 2002, Oblivion a few years later, Fallout 3, and finally Skyrim to round out a decade of voice acting discomfort. So I hope, since they are going to be pursuing celebrity voice actors, that they pursue the ones that are great at disguising themselves while still pulling fantastic performances, which makes Mark Hamill even more of a perfect fit than he already was. What about the majority of characters? There won't be a celebrity for all of them. I saw a thread on the official forum that proposed the idea of crowdsourced voice actors, serving the dual purpose of having a unique voice for every single character you might interact with in the game, and allowing the fans to be involved in a very large way. This is actually an idea that's been put forth a lot over the years on game forums. I've seen it pop up numerous times myself. The logistics aren't ideal. Either having everyone go to the studio, which gives the advantage to those that live close, or having someone with a laptop and microphone travel around the world to the select 300 or so that pass the buck. It doesn't seem feasible to me, though it would be great if it could work. But I don't imagine in a massively multiplayer game like Star Citizen that there will be as much emphasis on having thousands of NPCs since there will be thousands of player characters that you will be doing the majority of your interactions with. Though there will of course be bartenders at spaceports and other NPC types, I think most of the NPCs we'll be running into will be during the Squadron 42 single player campaign. As it is military centric, I doubt there will be many NPCs beyond the military carrier that we're based on and the alien species that we'll run into. Which means that there won't be that many NPCs to worry about voicing. But the alien species? What should the Sean sound like? Based on how they look, I think we all imagine and expect about the same thing. They're clearly reptilian, so the obvious Cliché choice is a slithery voice, maybe raspy like a Khajiit or Argonian from the Elder Scrolls. 
Ahlikur. Are they fork-tongued? Should they have slight lisps or elongate their S's? Most reptiles have no vocal cords. These are aliens, so we can get creative. Maybe they have multiple vocal cords or voice boxes and have a sort of doubled or tripled up echo type of sound coming out. Or maybe they could buck the cliche and make the Sean sound beautiful, angelic even. It would be unexpected to see this admittedly scary reptilian creature and then hear a hauntingly pure voice. The Mass Effect universe has a similar alien species in the Turian, and they have essentially traditional human voices with a subtle doubling effect. But the Mass Effect universe also had some unique alien voices, and not just voices, but species as well. We know that there will be a few different alien races in Star Citizen, though we don't yet know much about any of them besides the Sean. I hope that at least one of them isn't a traditional humanoid alien. This opens up a lot more options for how they could sound. As an example, I like to dig into conspiratorial stuff from time to time. It's fun and intrigues me. And two years ago, there was this bogus story from a couple of guys who claimed to know someone on the inside of your traditional world government alien interaction type scenario. I might be off on some details, but it doesn't matter as it was all fake anyway. This person on the inside allegedly took part in a sort of exchange program where a select few humans were altered biologically so that they could interact with this alien species. And what was really fun and unique about this completely fictional alien species was that it wasn't a humanoid type of alien. It was described as being a silicon-based life form, essentially the equivalent of a floating diamond creature. We've seen similar crazy alien types in many sci-fi stories and one-off Star Trek episodes, but what really struck me was how they described the sound of the voice or vocal communications of these creatures. They described it as the sound of pebbles dropping into a metal bucket. And if you were communicating with them, you would hear that sound while they were simultaneously communicating via telepathy in your language. Something different like that, as opposed to four standard humanoid aliens with weird foreheads, would be very cool. Star Trek's out-of-universe excuse for having every species look basically the same as humans was limitations on budget and special effects. I think Chris should be able to swing both, considering it's a video game. And again, it's not so much for the appearance as it is for the sound, since that's what we're discussing, though both being truly new and interesting would be great. What about sound effects? What should space sound like? My sincerest hope? I hope it sounds like nothing. Personally, I just want a lot of really deep, boomy, vibration-y type of sounds within the cockpit itself. I want to feel the base of my ship's turrets firing, resonating through the hull and up through my seat. A great example of sound production can be heard in the mech combat FPS Hawken, which I believe is either just coming out or will be out soon as of this recording. I included a link to some gameplay from it in the show notes in which you can hear some good examples. I recommend headphones or a subwoofer. It's all first person, you're sitting in essentially a cockpit as you would be in Star Citizen. Obviously you're not in space, but we know that Chris isn't going to go with realistic silent space, so the next best thing for me, as I said, is a deep, boomy space sound. Bone crunching metal against metal, the sound of gears grinding with turrets spinning and massive carrier engines pulsing at a very low register, the pounding of distant explosions and ordnance whizzing past your cockpit, 
I want to be scared to get shot at or to even enter combat. Sound will play a big role in instilling that fear. Visceral is a buzzword that gets thrown around, but it belongs in sound discussion. It should be visceral and not feel like a toy when you pull a trigger or your ship takes a hit. Being in first person, basically trapped in your cockpit and helmet with all kinds of dangerous effects sounding around you that you can't even see, should be visceral. Worthy of note, from what we've heard so far, I do really like how the engines of the Vandul fighters sounded around the middle of the first Star Citizen trailer, right as the action kicks in. Kind of a spirally sound, but still full and meaty. You may have noticed the ridiculous adjectives you have to use to describe sound effects. But I'd really like to see, or hear rather, that first-person interaction extend to in-ship radios and music. And this brings us to the music portion. Maybe the soundtrack for the game can be an amalgamation of all kinds of sounds. It's a big universe. The traditional bombastic military orchestral stuff will be great for the Squadron 42 campaign, but when we muster out, if I'm a bounty hunter for a while, I might like to have some Ninja Tune Radio-style smooth, electronic, jazzy music playing, or if I'm a space trucker, maybe I'd like to have some hard or progressive rock like Yes or King Crimson. The anime Cowboy Bebop, which I'm sure will be a major influence for at least one person at Cloud Imperium Games, does the wide music spectrum in a sci-fi space environment better than almost anything else. Organs, harmonicas, jazz, folk, acoustic guitars, pop songs, all excellent and all extremely appropriate for whatever scene they were included in. So what if the Star Citizen music production goes more that route, where you essentially have Grand Theft Auto-style radio stations for the Star Citizen portion that you can flick through in your cockpit? Or if you're in a larger ship, can have a track pumping throughout the ship as you go about repairs or minigames with friends. And maybe even in the single-player portion as well, in some military missions where one of your zany co-pilots or squad leaders plays a familiar track through the comm system of everyone's fighters as they're zipping around shooting at Vandul. The question then would be, is licensed music the way to go? Or just multiple composers all contributing their style? Or one jack-of-all-trades composer who is able to write excellent music in multiple genres. I brought up Cowboy Bebop, and the music from that series was composed entirely by Yoko Kano with her band Seatbelts. Numerous styles, but all exceptionally written and recorded. Regarding licensed music, I think I personally would prefer for there to be fresh music 800 years in the future, with maybe a few choice selections from the 20th and 21st centuries. And classical, of course. Then there's always the option of, instead of someone composing tons of varied genre tracks or licensing all kinds of music, allowing users to set up their own custom playlists that they play through their ship radios. I know I'd have Chopin's Nocturnes and Preludes playing more often than not. Imagine the classic calm of a beautiful piano piece as background to an intense battle against pirates. Slight tangent, but I hope to see the physical action of my character's hands reaching up to change a radio station. What if I'm in battle and really need to change a song? Well, that's a risk you take. You either listen to whatever it's stuck on, or you take your hand off the thruster for that split second. Or what if you just have to turn the volume down to hear that hail a little clearer? But back to the music. On the other end of the spectrum, there's traditional composing of a traditional soundtrack. What kind of music is fitting? Well, as with everything, this is my opinion, but... I've never heard a better sci-fi space opera soundtrack than Battlestar Galactica's. Bear McCreary, the composer, did a phenomenal job. 
Then you say, well, let's just hire the crap out of Bear McCreary. We all smile at the thought, and then I ask, how much do we want Star Citizen to emulate things that have come before, as excellent as they may have been? And how much do we want Star Citizen to be fresh and worthy of future projects emulating Star Citizen? Everything is influenced by everything, but some of those things will hit you like a blast of cool air while others fall flat. Compare how exciting conceptually and in its execution Battlestar Galactica was to, say, Star Trek Enterprise. Now we have heard an example work-in-progress track from longtime composer George Oldsier. Forgive me if I pronounce that incorrectly. Since it is an early track, I can't comment on the quality as it's using orchestral samples as opposed to the real thing, but I will comment on the style. As someone who grew up watching the original Star Trek movies, 1 through 6, that's instantly what I hear in it, Wrath of Khan especially. It's a very space, military, upbeat type of tune. It is kind of dated, especially when compared to the musical trend of more modern sci-fi like BSG, but it fits the feel of the Wing Commander-esque Squadron 42 single-player campaign. And having played Crusader No Remorse as a kid, I know that George has a wide range. Now whether changes to some of the original work-in-progress material will take place, now that the budget for the game is much higher than originally anticipated remains to be seen. But as with all things, I am excited to see what comes. Oh dear. Now we all know what that sound means. The holidays are upon us, and this episode is coming to a close. I was originally going to include a segment discussing peripherals in addition to sound direction, as I wasn't sure if I would have enough to say about music and sound effects to fill an episode. How wrong I was. I do hope it wasn't too long, however, and maybe it gave you something to listen to in your holiday travels. So, next episode, look forward to discussion on joysticks, controllers, Oculus Rifts, Leaps, iPads, and all kinds of other zany things. What's going to be best for optimal immersion? Myself, I prefer the tactile feedback of actually flipping physical switches. I love to push buttons, as my lovely and patient producer can testify. In addition to peripheral talk, we will finally have our first guest from the community on the show. If you'd like to join in future shows to answer some questions about yourself and your interests as they relate to Star Citizen, and you are willing to go through the trouble, send me an email at starsoratoria at gmail.com or find me in comments on the site or discussion forums around the web. For now, while my producer preps the ship for our dangerous holiday travels, I think I will prep the music we'll be listening to along the way. She's going to want festive holiday music, I know she is but we'll see what I have to say about that. My name is Senate Van Rijn, and this has been another episode of Stars Oratoria. Thanks for listening, and a happy holidays to you and yours. See you next time. <laughs>